I invite you to turn into your copy of God's Word to Ezekiel 36. I will be reading verses 16 through 38. Hear now this reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant Word. Moreover, the Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their ways, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them, for the blood they had shed on the land, and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will make you, excuse me, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees, and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and deeds that were not good, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. 
Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruin shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Our Father, we rejoice that You have given to us Your Scriptures. We're thankful for those men that You used to bring forth Your inspired Word. We are thankful that we have Your Word as a light unto our feet. We pray, Father, that we would cherish Your Word. That we would spend much time in Your Word. That we would seek to see our Savior in Your Word. And therefore, grow in grace and in the knowledge of Him. And Father, we recognize the importance of Your people praying for revival within Your church. Father, we ask that You would take this message and convince each one of us that we need to pray for revival for Your church, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. We ask, Lord, that You would abundantly bless the proclamation of Your Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, Several years ago, I was asked to be the speaker at a weekend conference at our OPC church in Denver, Colorado. The first message I preached was on the need to pray for revival. After the message, one of the attendees came up to me And he challenged me by insisting that we do not need to pray for revival, we just simply need to make good use of the available means of grace. I was so shocked by that, I didn't know what to answer. He went on his way, and another attendee who had heard what he had said to me, explained to me that that man was simply following what a seminary professor had been teaching. 
that seminary professor was indeed teaching that we do not need to pray for a revival. We just need to make good use of the available means of grace. Well, I certainly believe we should make good use of the available means of grace. But, what if we see multitudes of others in the church not making good use of the available means of grace? Should we not pray for them? And on a larger scale, should we not pray for the Lord to revive His church, to send revival to His church? So here's a question. Is there a scriptural basis for praying for revival? Was that professor correct? Or was he wrong? If there's a biblical warrant for praying for revival, I think that means we should pray for revival. Well, in Psalm 119, the psalmist prayed eight times for the Lord to revive him. There he, of course, is addressing or speaking about personal revival. Now, if you believe that the ancient church sang all of the psalms of the Psalter, then it means that even though this may have been first person singular in those places that I have listed in my notes, if this was sung corporately, then there's a corporate prayer for revival. Do you understand how I'm saying that? I meaning we. But we have in Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7, these words. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. That question, will you not revive us, is a plea for the Lord to revive His church. When I think on the deplorable moral corruption of our nation and the world, the more I think about how the church has failed in its duty. In Matthew chapter 5, the Lord didn't tell His people they ought to be salt. He didn't tell His people they should be light. You know what He said? He said, you are salt. You are light. The question is not whether or not we are salt and light. Christ said His disciples are. The question is, are we potent salt and are we brilliant light in this cursed world so full of corruption? When I am occasionally homesick on Sundays and I attempt to find a suitable TV broadcast of a worship service, I am generally disappointed. I am struck by the shallow, man-centered, 
self-exalting nature of what I witnessed. So often it's just seems more like a Christian pep rally than a worship service. More about performance and entertainment than any actual worship. I ask you this question this evening. Are we not living in a time when the church is in desperate need of revival? When we look at verse 16, Notice that the, the title Lord, I say title, it's all capital letters, Lord. That's sometimes translated Jehovah, like in the um, American Standard. Um, I guess it's, my son uses the uh, Christian Standard Bible. Um, when instead of all caps for Lord, it, they translated Jehovah. I am absolutely convinced that Lord here refers to the second person of the Trinity. I don't have time to explain that. I do not have time to... That's almost like another sermon in itself. But I believe here that Christ the second person is addressing His church through this prophet Ezekiel. What we find in the text that we just read, Ezekiel 36, verses 16 through 38, is that the Lord that Christ gave His people two incentives and then an invitation to pray for revival. The first incentive, verses 16 through 20, is the desolation of the nation. That's the first thing that Christ points His people to is the desolation of their nation. Look at verse 17. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. This desolation was the result of this uncleanness. And then also we can see in verse 18 that this desolation was the result of their bloodshed and their idolatry. Look at verse 18. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their deeds with which they had defiled it. Notice the reference to blood, the shedding of blood, and idolatry. The shedding of blood would refer to the violation of the sixth commandment. Idolatry would be a violation of the second commandment. The implication here of Christ giving His people these two sins is that they had violated all ten commandments. Both tablets of the law. Do you think that if a person is guilty of murder... He's going to have a problem with lying or stealing? Do you think that if a person is an idolater, he's going to have a problem with desecrating the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath, or taking the Lord's name in vain? So the implication is that they had broken repeatedly all Ten Commandments. 
verse 18 also tells us that the reason for the desolation was because of the Lord's wrath. The Lord's wrath against him. Verses 19 and 20 give us the description of their desolation. We first look at these reasons for their desolation. Next, the description. The description is that of them being scattered among the nations. Those nations that the Lord used to scatter them were the instruments by which the Lord chastened His people. And it is significant when you look at the verbs here. The verb tense is, I poured out, I scattered, I judged. It's significant that these verbs are in the past tense because it shows that the time of chastisement was over and there is now hope for restoration. And so, God's people were given this incentive, this first incentive to pray for the revival of their country, of their nation, the Old Testament church, because of the desolation that God had brought upon them in His fury against their sin. The second incentive is the sovereignty of the Lord, the sovereignty of Christ. This is verses 21 through 36. First of all, He promised to exercise His sovereignty for His own name's sake. Look at verses 21 excuse me, 20 and 21. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Now verse 21 is actually, actually it's verse um, yes, 21, not merely does it conclude this next section, but it's transitional because the same theme picks up in verse 21 where the Lord says He's going to work this revival in Israel for His own name's sake. When He says here in verse 20, when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, it is possible that the word here that's translated when can be translated when, but sometimes it has more the idea of introducing an explanation. And I believe that this is how it should be understood. When they came to the nations wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. In that, they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of His land. The idea here is, the primary way that he's describing here in verse 20, that His people had profaned His name, His holy name, was by the people making this comment. These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of 
his land. In the ancient times, when one nation conquered another, it was believed that the god or gods of the conquering nation had conquered the god or the gods of the conquered nation. The nations into which God's people were scattered are those that had been conquered by Babylon, whose god was Marduk. Thus, in the mind of the people of the ancient world during this time of his people being chastised, it means that Marduk, in their mind, was greater than Jehovah. Do you think the Lord's going to let that stand? No. No. You see, we can see here that the Lord desires to restore His reputation and to make the world know that He is His God. This is the primary way in which they had defiled His name. I don't believe it was the only way. Uh, I don't think that was the only way that they profound His name. Other things there could be mentioned. But that would be the primary one. Now, Christ promised to exercise His sovereignty through a series of I wills. There are about 15 I wills in this text. I tried to emphasize those I wills as I read through the text. If you picked up on that, good. If you didn't, that's okay. But the thing about it is, this repetition, I will do this, and I will do this, I will do this, I will... It's driving toward, get this, it's driving toward the invitation for His people to pray for the very things that He sovereignly said He would do. Now what are the purposes of the exercise of His sovereignty in terms of restoring the nation, in terms of reviving His people, is so that the nations would know Him. Look at verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nation shall know that I am Jehovah, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Let that sink in. This shows that Christ desires for the nations to know Him as Jehovah. But notice, when will that take place? When I am hallowed in you before their lives. I want you to think about the first two petitions in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. That first petition is hallowed be thy name. That's not ascribing holiness to God. That is a petition. Read your shorter catechism. Well, it could be translated this way. May your name be hallowed. 
May You cause Your people to reverence You and see You as holy, to regard You as holy. So when we have here the Lord saying to the people of Ezekiel's day, the nation shall know that I am Jehovah, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before your eyes. There's now a logical sequence here. What's the second petition? Thy kingdom come. Get the connection here. When God's people hallow God, when God's people treat their Savior as holy, it's that's when the nations will know who He is. I use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for my private devotional time when I pray. And when I pray that first petition, I am consciously aware of the fact that I am praying for God to revive His people so that they will hallow Him. And that as a result, the kingdom will come. It will advance in greater breadth and depth because of how God's people are reverencing their Savior, reverencing their God. I hope you're following what I'm trying to say to you. But understand, he not only does he desire for the nations to know who he is as a result of reviving his people, he wants his people themselves to know. Look at the very last sentence of the text, the end of verse 38. Then they, referring to God's people, then they shall know that I am the Lord. If you ever have read through the book of Ezekiel, I'm sure many of you have, one of the things that should strike you is the number of times that we read, and they shall know that I am the Lord. The book of Ezekiel makes it abundantly clear that the second person of the Trinity desires to be known. We recognize also as we move on in terms of the exercise of Christ's sovereignty in connection with the revival, Christ says that He will exercise and demonstrate His sovereignty by reversing the exile and the sinful conditions that caused it He also promises that He would sovereignly make the land prosperous again. Look at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. The cleansing with water as an expression of forgiveness and spiritual renewal is also found in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing 
of the Holy Spirit. Notice what we see next <coughs> as Christ is promising to reverse the exile, but also to take care of the sinful condition of His people that caused the exile. In verse 26, we read, And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is a rather interesting way of describing what we call regeneration. A very common way in which regeneration is expressed in the Old Testament is the circumcision of the heart. We find in I find this fascinating. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. The Lord tells His people that He would circumcise their hearts after the exile. The Lord told His people in advance what would happen. That they would turn from Him. That He would send them. This is during the time of Moses. That He would send them in exile. And afterwards, he would circumcise their hearts. In other words, he would regenerate his people. What's interesting here is, the Lord is describing regeneration in terms of radical surgery. Do you believe that when Ezekiel wrote his book, anybody was practicing heart surgery? That's a pretty modern idea, isn't it? So this is, this is a radical idea. But I want you to notice what Christ tells His people concerning regeneration and its effects. Verses 31-32. through 32. Listen to this. This is after He has put a new heart in them, put a new spirit in them, um, where He says, I will put... This is verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. But notice what he says in verse 31 and 32. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds which were not good. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. The point is that regeneration brings about the conviction of sin. Remember that. Regeneration brings about the conviction of sin. A pastor friend and I were having uh, a lunch one time and he said that he has a daughter. At the time, he, his daughter, he said, in high school, that she knew the Westminster Standards thoroughly. She knew her Scriptures well. And at any time, there was a theological discussion 
at the Christian school where she was attending. She was right there in the thick of it and defending Orthodox. And then my friend said, but she won't own her sin. And it's breaking my heart. That's the correct response. Look, when I... I told my dad that I, the Lord saved me when I was 13 years old. And he said, oh, no, 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 son. The Lord saved you when you were seven years old. I said, no, Dad. He says, yes, son. I sat down with you and asked you questions and you gave me all the right answers. And I said, Dad... The Scripture doesn't say that he who has the right answers has life. It's he who has the Son who has life. I didn't have the Son until the Lord got a hold of my heart and showed me how dark it was and how desperately I needed to have my heart cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That was my conversion. Not my indoctrination. That was my regeneration. If you claim to be regenerated and you have little or no remorse about your sin, you need to ask yourself if God has really done a work in you. One of the things I was thankful about all of my children, the three who have made professions of faith is each one of them did demonstrate a brokenness over sin. And if they had not, I would not have had them be interviewed by the session. But here we come to this awareness that the Lord is pleading with His people to pray for revival. This is what we're about to get into. But we need to understand He did give them these two incentives. One was the desolation of the nation, which He's now going to promise to restore. He also has promised the exercise of His his divine sovereignty. Now, is this not text in Ezekiel 36 appropriate for the church today? How would you consider the spiritual state of Germany today? you realize that we, the church in the U.S., is sending missionaries to the very country where the Reformation began? My son-in-law's father was a missionary in Stuttgart, Germany for, I think, maybe four years. A missionary in Germany. England used to be a powerful missionary nation. But now, England is in a terrible moral and spiritual decline. I remember sitting in grad class, can't remember what course it was, but I still remember Danny McCain telling us Revival is not the work of God, it's the work of man. And he was very emphatic. 
I do remember the professor, some of you may have heard of Dr. Michael Barrett, a Presbyterian I might add, probably had some, way, some influence on bringing me into Presbyterianism. He didn't know what to say to that. He was that shocked. I don't blame him. I didn't, what? Revival is the work of man, not God? How could anybody be so bold as to say that? Um, of course, he was not reformed at all. In fact, everybody knew he wasn't reformed, and we kind of knew who was reformed and and uh, who wasn't, uh, and who was kind of in between. The sovereignty of the Lord in the matter of revival shows that mere human effort is fallen on its face in the dust. Now, I don't mind if I drive by a church and have revival meetings, and it gives the dates for that revival. I don't mind that. But you really can't plan a revival. I think you know that. I know what they're seeking to do. But I want you to notice as we come to these last two verses, particularly verse 37, that what we see, and it's really good to point out how verse 36 ends. Before the Lord gives His people this invitation to pray for revival. He says, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. See, this invitation expresses that prayer is a privilege. In Ezekiel 20, verses 1 through 3, the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord refused to hear them. He refused. Now He's giving an invitation for the nation to pray. The invitation here to pray for revival shows that the blessings could not be expected without prayer. I don't know if you have noticed this among Calvinists. Maybe you travel in better circles than I do. But I've met Calvinists who tend to rely so much upon God's sovereignty, upon His decrees, that they tend to minimize the need for prayer. Do you believe that God has determined the very second that you will die? See some heads shaking. Yes, of course. Uh, so you're going to stop eating and drinking? Hey, honey, you know, we're running a little... It's really tight this month with the budget. I, I think we're just going to have to do without groceries for a few months. Don't worry about it. The Lord's already determined what day we're going to die and what hour and all that. So we'll just... No. We still realize the Lord expects us to maintain our life. Now, nobody should have such a view of God's sovereignty that it causes that person, that believer, to ignore responsibilities, especially in the matter of prayer and evangelism. My, my wife, well, my kids were with us. I was returning from, a, I won't tell you what church, but we were returning from, a, I had a preaching assignment. And while we were headed home, my wife said, I couldn't believe what this one lady said to me. I said, What? She said, 
Isn't it wonderful being a Calvinist? It means we don't have to evangelize. I mean, what? That's terrible. I agree with Spurgeon that the doctrine of election is what guarantees the success of evangelism. That's why he was such a powerful preacher, why the Lord used him to bring in so many of the elect into the kingdom. And he was also a tremendous man of prayer. I want you to listen to this from Matthew Henry. He wrote that God requires that His people should seek unto Him and He will incline their hearts to do it. When He is coming towards them in ways of mercy, they must pray for it. For by prayer, God is sought unto and inquired after. What is the substance of God's promises must be the substance of our prayers. By asking for the mercy promised, we must give glory to the donor, express value for the gift, own our dependence, and put honor upon prayer, which God has put honor upon. Christ Himself must ask, and then God will give Him the heathen for His inheritance. Must pray to the Father, and then He will send the Comforter. Much more must we ask that we may receive. That's a wonderful statement. So let's think about this for a moment. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, the Lord promised regarding food and clothes, let me just read the text. This is verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He's talking again about food and clothes. Oh, well there's the promise. If I seek God's kingdom... Well, Christ has promised that He would give everything I need. He'd give me my clothes, He'd give me my food. So I don't need to I don't need to pray for that, right? Whoa, wait a minute. In the Lord's Prayer, fourth petition, we are told to pray for our daily bread. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus promised that He would build His church and that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. In 1 Corinthians 15.25, Paul declared that Christ must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And so that means we do not need to pray for the advancement of the kingdom. We do not need to pray um, that the gates of hell, for the gates of hell not to prevail against the kingdom, against the church, right? No. No. Jesus said we are to pray for the kingdom to come. I can give you other examples, but the point here is this. We pray the promises of God to God. These aren't reasons not to pray. They are reasons to pray. To me, it's an amazing thing that after this series of I wills, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, that Christ gives His people an invitation to pray 
for revival. Jeremy Lanfear trusted Christ for salvation when he was 33 years old. And he was living in New York City and he joined the Brick Presbyterian Church. And the Lord gave Jeremy great evangelistic zeal. So in his spare time, he'd be on the streets of New York sharing his faith, sharing the gospel. In the summer of 1857, a Reformed congregation, the North Dutch Church, on Fulton Street, decided to hire someone to to evangelize the immigrants that lived around the church, and they hired Jeremy. He passed out invitations to church. They saw few results. Later, he decided to have a prayer meeting for businessmen from noon to one o'clock. He handed out a handbill. He had it printed up and handed it out and invited all those interested to a weekly prayer meeting on Wednesdays in the third floor meeting room at the North Dutch Church. The first prayer meeting was scheduled for September 23, 1857. On that day, Jeremy went up to the meeting room at noon and began praying. Ten minutes passed, no one else came. Another ten minutes passed and still no one came. At 12.30, he heard a door open at the street level and he heard footsteps coming up to the meeting room. A man entered the room, knelt next to Jeremy, and joined him in prayer. Others came until at one o'clock there were six men kneeling in prayer. The following week, 20 attended the prayer meeting. In the first week of October, the prayer meetings were held daily, and the number grew to 40. When the fourth week came, the average attendance was over 100, and many were asking how to be saved. Prayer meetings grew to the point that every room in the North Dust Church was filled to capacity with men praying. And when the church, that church ran out of space, a nearby church opened its doors for hosting the prayer meetings. Many other churches also then opened their doors for these prayer meetings. Also, police stations and fire stations hosted prayer meetings. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily for prayer in New York. And there were also other cities that experienced a renewed interest in prayer. In Chicago, the Metropolitan Theater was filled every day with 2,000 people praying. In Louisville, several thousands gathered for prayer each morning. 2,000 assembled for daily prayer in Cleveland. In St. Louis, churches were filled, filled with people praying. In many places, tents were set up for prayer meetings. 
And the newly formed YMCA also played a, an important role in holding prayer meetings and spreading the revival throughout the country. In February of 1858, Gordon Bennett of the New York Herald gave extensive coverage to the prayer revival. Not to be outdone, the New York Tri Tribune devoted an entire issue in April of 1858 to the news of the revival. The news of the revival traveled west by telegraph. It was the first revival in which the media played an important role in spreading. Thus, this small prayer meeting of Jeremy Lanthier on September 23, 1857, led to what became known as the Third Great Awakening. This was the first revival beginning in America with worldwide influence. The revival spread to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, Europe, South Africa, India, Australia, and the Pacific Isles. All classes of people became interested in salvation. Backsliders returned to Christ in His church. Conversions increased during this time. And Christians now desired deeper instruction in spiritual truths. Families established daily devotions, and entire communities underwent noticeable change in morals. Preaching, which had in many places become intellectual and lifeless, now concentrated on the truths of the gospel. It is estimated that within two years, one million converts were added to the churches in the United States. As James Buchanan of Scotland summarized, it was a time when spiritual life was imparted to the dead and new spiritual life imparted to the living. Will you join me in praying for revival? We used to attend a church. We'd go to the midweek prayer meeting. When the pastor would ask for prayer requests, when my son, he was a little boy at the time, Severin was at, when, he, when the pastor would ask, are there any prayer requests? Severin's hand would go up and everybody knew what he was going to say. Let's pray for revival. Sadly, my wife and I heard the snickers when he would do that. Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday. Then at one of our spring conferences, the evening service, which is more like a sermon than a conference message, the speaker spoke on revival. And afterwards, one of the ladies of that church came up to me and said, maybe Severin has something there. And I'm thinking to myself, you think? <laughs> you think? And it was shortly after that, Severin didn't have to raise his hand anymore because on the prayer sheet that was prepared for each Wednesday night, they put in, pray for revival. Pray for revival. Look around you. If you look around you and see the terrible corruption that's in this country, ask yourself why. 
Well, you say, well, because people are sinners. That's absolutely correct. But could it possibly because the church has not been what it should be? And the only way that the church will be what it should be is if God, if Christ, revives His people if He causes them to reverence and treat holy our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that the nations will know who He is. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would put it in our hearts to pray for revival, that You would revive Your people. Father, there are many who are professing believers, and I believe, Lord, there are many who, even though we would not like their worship style, and yet they would still be Your people. But Lord, wake them up. Cause them to have a greater reverence for You, to treat You as holy, not to have a flippant attitude about You and a flippant attitude about worship. Lord, we ask that You would do this not only in the hearts of others, but Lord, would not each one of us also confess we need daily revival. We need the work of the Spirit within us. We need to exhibit day by day all of the fruit of the Spirit. Father, please burden us with this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.